everybody. Welcome to the Variety Show with Michael and Robert. I'm Michael. And I'm Robert. What's going on, Robert? Well, it's been a while since we recorded. Yeah, it has. Oh, there's been a lot going on in the world, and I'm not even talking about the crisis in Ukraine. I'm talking about the Oscars, March Madness, new Pixar movie came out, we qualified for the World Cup, and uh, my wife's social media hit 10,000 followers, so... In my area of the universe, or my corner of the universe, that's quite a bit. All good news. All good news, for sure. Yeah, except the Ukraine thing. Okay, yes, except the... The Will Smith thing, though, great news. I'm a little bit tired of it now, admittedly, everyone's opinions, but extremely entertaining when it happened. My goodness. You know why he hit him with an open hand? Because paper beats rock. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Was that something you caught up on the Twitter sphere? Oh uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wish I came up with that myself. I'm not that clever. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness for that, because other than that, the Oscars were extremely boring and March Madness has been pretty boring. Meh. Alright, you ready to to get into it? Let's do it. Alright, what do we got first? Our first article and point of discussion was shared by Michael. It's a video, a TED Talk, called The Theory of Creativity by Duncan Wardle. Duncan Wardle was the former head of innovation and creativity at Disney. He also worked at Disney in various roles for about 30 years. So when you want to listen to someone talk about creativity, I think he is an expert on it. Essentially, he talks about how you can foster this creativity, and he lays out four points. He talks about naive experts, being an outlier, the ability to storytell, and I'll elaborate a little bit more on that, reframing certain terms to recontextualize what experiences will inform your thinking. For example, he gives car wash and what you think of a car wash versus if he called it an auto spa instead and what you think in a spa is. And then finally, bravery, the ability to be brave. And he has this quote I really like that the opposite of bravery is not cowardice, it's conformity. Love that, love that. So, Michael, we'll just dive right into it. What brought you to this very intriguing video? I mentioned McKinsey's social media presence. It's an account based on Disney facts. And a bunch of the interesting facts that she's come across have been actually publicity stunts that were viral stunts before viral stunts were a thing. I'm not sure exactly when he left, but McKinsey at some point suggested to me his TED Talk, which is how I found this particular video. I would say I was first introduced to him as a person through a couple of his stunts two of which were the day stitch invaded disney world it was a publicity stunt where stitch like destroyed a bunch of stuff and like defaced the castle with like toilet paper but it was only up for a day something probably gratuitously expensive that they would never do today because it's only there for a day and then a second thing that he did that was really cool is in disneyland when michael phelps was popular it was actually before he won all his gold medals in 2008, it was like 2006, um, 
so right before YouTube came out, he uh, he put a full Olympic sized swimming pool on Main Street in Disneyland for like thirty six hours and had the Olympians swim up and down it, and that was the stunt. And now nobody knows about it, but back then apparently it was a huge, a huge creative draw, something that they would never do. Today it's it's mostly, yeah. You know, he's he's since left the company, and today it's more standard fare, movie trailers, previews, ads on TV, all that stuff, boring stuff, uninteresting stuff. And so, I was super excited to hear what Duncan had to say. Wow, that's. Just lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. Let me interrupt you. You lost your train of thought. Is that because you feel like we're at work right now? Because we're, if there's anything I learned from this video, he says your best ideas don't happen when you're at work. Did you? Could you relate to that at all? I think that's true. You're a busy beta. For those listeners, you got to watch the video. But he talks about these different wavelengths of thinking in your brain, and he has a really cool. I really enjoy the. It's the alliteration that he uses. He calls it busy beta, thoughtful theta, amazing alpha, and dreaming delta. Essentially, busy beta is what we mostly function in. That's our day-to-day. -day. When we wake up, we're very conscious. We make quick decisions. We're kind of running with what all of our experiences that we have, and we just make decisions and do actions based on that. And he says, in this line of thinking, your subconscious and your conscious have no connection. Then he talks about thoughtful theta. When you're in the thoughtful theta state, you're basically slipping into subconscious. He talks about Thomas Edison putting a penny between his knees. And when he was about to fall asleep, the penny would drop. It would ping. He would wake up really quickly and write down what he was thinking about. And then dreaming delta, which is you have your best ideas when you're sleeping and then you don't remember them. That happens to me so often. And finally, amazing alpha, which is a wavelength in your brain or when you're thinking in this wavelength, it's when you have your most creative thoughts. Yeah, the way I think of it is like if there's a spectrum from like total real relaxation and total engagement where you're like busy doing something. Thoughtful Theta and Amazing Alpha are in the middle. And Dreamy Delta and Busy Beta are on the outsides. And really you want to be somewhere in that space between like almost between like being in the dead of sleep and being fully tied up in something. Some place where you're relaxed and you have space to think. Maybe you're laughing. Maybe you're in the bath. Or maybe just as you're dozing off to bed. Yes. Like the anecdote you gave with Thomas Edison and another one he gave with Salvatore Dali. Yeah, to answer your question, I, I realized that I never answered your question, which I have a tendency to do. I don't feel that creative at work, but I think it's because I'm in busy beta all the time. You're not very relaxed at work, and it usually comes at you very, very quickly. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this sometimes because I don't know about your work, but at my work, tendency to be stressful unless I have strategies in place to pull myself out of the stressful state because I don't work best when I'm stressed. Um, I also don't think best when I'm busy. And both those two things, I think, are part and parcel of working in an office job these days. When I think about it, I'm like, okay, I've got eight or nine hours of my day every day. If I just look at how I spend my time, just very broadly, 
without getting into the details. It, it could be hypothetically 50% productive time, 50% time spent futzing around either because of anxiety or busyness or context switching. And I'm like, okay, how could I reframe that to try to get more productive time out of the day or higher quality productive time for that 50%. And I was like, okay, well, historically I just, I keep trying to take that 50% that's productive and make a 60, 70, 80%. That's just really hard. It's, it's hard to take yourself and get more out of more time. So what I've been looking, thinking about recently is like, okay, let's assume I spend 50% of my time stressed or unproductive because I'm busy or context switching or whatever. What if I took that time and I split that into like, yeah, I'll allow myself to be busy for 25% of the time or context switching or stress or whatever. But the other 25% of the time, I'm going to be completely zen. I, I will take a break and when I'm stressed out and just watch a YouTube video and I will recenter myself or meditate or whatever. And then ultimately, I'm not increasing the amount of time that I'm productive, but because my brain is in a more relaxed state, maybe like amazing alpha state, I'm able to get more done to work more effectively because I can actually use my brain to think instead of busy beta state. I, d I wanted to transition, but not to the next article. I wanted to ask you a little bit more when you feel most creative. He talks about the different states and you alluded to what helps you become more creative. You said meditating, watching a YouTube video. Are there any other times where you're most creative and what, what are those circumstances? You would think it would be when I had the most free time, but it's actually the times when I have like a deadline. I find myself most productive either like when sleep is looming and I'm like, oh God, I get I got to get all this stuff done before I go to bed or when we're about to head out the door. So basically when I have some kind of framing device limiting the amount of time I have to work with, because when I, when I have a lot of free time over the weekend, my, my mind just goes crazy and I'm like so many possibilities. Part A of the answer is time when I have some kind of deadline. Part B would be, at least for me, times when I'm able to focus, it's times when I have the fewest options. So like, I don't draw as much anymore. Um, you'd think with all the time because of the pandemic at home, I'd have ton of, I'd have, I'd be like a perfect artist by now and have tons of time to draw. And I draw all the time, but no, there's too many distractions at home. The times when I'm most creative are historically when I'm traveling for work and I'm sitting in my hotel room after work and I have nothing to do. I have no options except my journal and in my sketchbook. And I just sit there and draw. I put in practical jokers on the TV in the background, which is hilarious. Maybe that has something to do with it too. And then I just sit there and I draw. And having the lack of extraneous deta extemporaneous detail around me or distractions or things I like or things I care about or things that can interrupt my attention that's when I feel really creative. So like when I see like pictures, pictures of people who work at Pixar in their office filled with tons of stuff, I think it's really cool. It's creative and you would, you'd think it'd be inspiring, but I think for me, it ends up being a distraction and I'm most inclined to be creative when you cut all that out and it's just me and my mind and nothing into my visual periphery to focus on. One more thing. One thing I do to simulate it at home that works sometimes is I turn off all the lights. 
if, if I turn off all the lights and I just have my laptop screen in front of me with like a blank piece of digital paper, words just pour out of me. Seems like for you, it's your create most creative space is when you have the fewest distractions. Yeah, I describe it as low optionality. Low optionality. The fewest distractions, and they're not accessible either. Because when you have the option, when you're at your house, you could watch TV. The remote's right there. You could draw. The drawing pad's right there. But the plethora of options at your disposal don't allow you to focus on nothing when you're sitting in your hotel room i've been there you're on the road you're sitting in your hotel room well there's not a lot for you to do right you you're off of work you don't really want to work so you just do one thing maybe turn on the tv that's pretty much it or read a book and you're really able to just focus without any possibility of distractions what about you when do you feel most creative like do you find that it's extremely different in your experience from what I'm saying or a lot of my ideas come when I just am doing one task and like you said I don't really have an option to do any other tasks because I'm walking the dogs and I didn't bring my phone (laughs) I can't listen to the podcast I just kind of sit there with my thoughts and there's something about not having your mind preoccupied with something almost this idea that I heard of People should be bored more often because when you're bored more often, that gives your mind time to cool off and start to synthesize the thoughts that are in your head and make connections. And that's when your ideas start to spring forth. But if you're constantly consuming things, if your brain is constantly running and trying to analyze input, like being on TikTok, scrolling on your phone, Watching television, binging watching television is not, for me, is not creative because your brain is just analyzing that. Uh, reading sometimes, like that one of the articles we prepared for this time was that long journal article. And I was like, my eyes, I just, I just can't process it. So I actually put it in like a natural text reader and had it read to me. <laughs> uh Something, yeah, something about the auditory versus like the visual. I I hear what you're saying. Yeah, when I'm like walking the dogs is one. I doodle too. Also, if I have something at work that is really mm-hmm. hard, a lot of times I'll find that it's better to step away from the problem, do something else, give a little bit of a breather, and then come back to the problem. Because I have a tendency when I'm having a really tough problem at work, I'll just keep ramming my head against the wall. And unfortunately, that doesn't help. (laughs) I get tunnel vision. And I don't see the other options. I'm just like, this has to work. I got to keep doing this, this, this. But when you step back, you can see the whole forest amongst the, the trees. I can relate. For me personally, I call that when I get into like brute force mode. It's like, I just want to get it done. You mm-hmm. can brute force it. And there's like no finesse. So for me, deadlines don't help me. Being up close to a deadline where it might help you, it does not help me because I just get even more tunnel vision. Do you feel like, although you don't have deadlines, like, I don't know, how, how are you encouraged to keep moving forward? 
Like, if you've got something you care about, like the garden thing. Like, how does that go from being something that's just in your head to something that ultimately becomes a reality? Because for me, I have so many ideas, and I'm kind of failing the execution part of things at a time. Yeah, you're squirreling. The the method from going from idea of garden to, to fruition, which it's not there yet, but I'm, I'm making the steps. So really identify the steps that general steps that you need to follow. Okay, how do you plan trips? Do you plan it down to the very minute? It depends. When you're going to go somewhere and you're on vacation. I like to plan the highlights. What I, I, I think my ideal vacation would be figuring out what the highlights are, the things that are important to me. Usually the, these are the things that get me to go to the location in the first place, like going to Peru, it was Machu Picchu. Outside of going to Machu Picchu, like I spent days in Cusco. It's like I didn't have any plans there. We just kind of figured it out as we made our way around. So that, and then I don't really do this usually, but I, I like the idea of like taking a look at the map and getting a little bit uh, comfortable with my bearings. And then uh, when I get there, there's this like sense of recognition. I might not know all the landmarks and all the particulars of what's there, but I kind of have a sense of how to get around. So that's how I would... So the way that you you plan your travel, that's how I would describe how you bring an idea in your head to fruition. Is that you know you want to do all these things. You you plan the highlights. You don't plan it down to the every minute because that takes kind of the wonder of this journey away from you, which is what you should do when you're trying to bring an idea to fruition. You may not know all the little itty bitty details or what may happen. So you need to build into your plan, the ability to be flexible, take care of unforeseen circumstances, but you have the general highlights along the way. So that's how I approach it. And as long as I keep following those highlights, you'll get to the end. That's so intuitive. I'm legitimately surprised right now. Good on you. And I mean that. I feel, I'm feeling inspired. You ready to move on to the next one? Yeah, let's. So this second one is a video that you sent me from one of my favorite YouTubers, Wheezy Waiter. It's called Why You're Procrastinating and What to Do About It. If Wheezy Waiter sounds familiar, it's because we talked about him, I think, all the way back in the first episode. If it doesn't sound familiar, then go back and listen. Okay, so to summarize his video, he starts it by asking the question that he framed into a tweet that ended up going more viral than he expected, which is, why don't I do the things that I want to do? The video goes on to break it down into a couple reasons, and with each reason, he's got a couple suggestions for what you can do to combat this feeling of procrastination or perpetual delay. Reason number one, in his words, there are no endless pleasure machines, which he reframes as moods are real you're not always going to be in the mood to do something that doesn't mean that you should give in to your mood because you know that can be self-defeating in terms of getting to your goal so like some strategy gives for overcoming that are one maybe your mood is a lie uh, maybe try the 10 minute rule where you, you start doing you commit to doing something for 10 minutes you do it for 10 minutes and then you find that you want to keep doing it if you find that you don't want to keep doing it, then you quit. You know, you gave the try. Maybe today's not the day. Another strategy he gives is 
um, find some technique or using external stimuli like music or whatever or YouTube videos to elevate your mood and then see if that helps get you started. The second reason that you might be procrastinating is you don't believe in it. You don't believe in why you're doing what you're doing. His biggest strategy for dealing with is just to understand the logic behind starting with your why, which is a famous book written by Simon Sinek. Start with your why instead of your what. Why am I starting a blog? Why are we doing this podcast? I'm doing it because I want to have interesting conversations with my friend and I think other people might find them interesting. That sounds to me like a lot more engaging mission than saying, oh, I just want to have a podcast. That's like It's kind of like an empty promise. Reason number three you might be procrastinating, you don't know how to do the thing. This is going to be the case with a lot of stuff. You might be really motivated to, to have like a YouTube cooking channel or whatever, but maybe you know how to cook, but you don't know how to do the YouTube piece and you get overwhelmed. And so you don't do anything. He recommends breaking it down into small bits. I would take his advice on the YouTube side of things because he's been doing this for 10 years. Only focus on just the next step. Don't focus on all the details, kind of like you were saying with, with regards to trip planning and a project materialization, anti-squirreling. Procrastination number four of reason number four of four, fear of failure or perfectionism, reframing it, which is actually the topic of the video from the last time we talked about him. Basically, this occurs when you're you're focused on how what you're making or what you're doing is going to be received by the outside world or how you might perceive it after it's complete. Some suggestions he has for dealing with this are deadlines. Deadlines help with that spiraling out of control. Um, they don't have to be, uh, they don't have, they can, he says they can be arbitrary. He finds simple ones work better end of the month, end of the week, end of the day. He talks about Parkinson's law, which we talked about in not so many words before. Work expands to fill the time allotted for it. Extra time creates diminishing returns. And he ends by leaving, he ends with two mantras that he pairs with this particular reason, which is perfect is the enemy of the good, the quote we've all heard before. And then done is better than perfect. And I really like that one. I really like that one a lot. I enjoyed the video a lot. I think he reiterated a lot of things that I had heard in different places, all kind of wrapped into a nice little package. So you can, I think, what was it? It was like a 10 minute video. You can digest all of it within 10 minutes. Or if you put it on two times speed, five minutes. <laughs> it was probably 10 minutes and change because YouTubers are incentivized to make it just over 10 minutes so they can have ads at the beginning and middle. <laughs> I enjoyed it because I had felt that I'd been procrastinating on a couple of things. Namely, one of them was sending in to my HOA the shed options, which seems like a very simple thing to do. It's like, why don't you just send it in? But I just kept myself busy with other things and then just never did it. <laughs> and finally, I was just like, okay, why am I procrastinating? And I think it was that I didn't want them to say no to an option. And so if you don't ever get a result, then a non-result, you never can get a no. But I did it. I did it this week and it was fine. As always, in my mind, I had always I always build up these things to more than what they end up being. And it was just like, yeah, both these options are great. 
I didn't even need to worry about it. It's funny how often that ends up being the case. I, I can relate to that a lot too, right? Because I've got the blog, want to write as much as possible, yet for the first 29 days of March, I don't think I wrote anything. But then the last three days, I was like, fuck it, I'm just going to write. And, you know, I they're not going to be like masterpieces or whatever, but I sit down, I write for like 30, 45 minutes, I get about 300 to 500 words, which isn't the longest thing in the world. But that's a that's a pretty decent spot for something I just wrote in a day. Um, and then I'll... I'll sit back, I'll edit it for a couple of minutes, adjust the voice, adjust the tone or whatever. Then I could do all like my finagling to make it perfect and uh, then get it published. But I was so anxious about like writing perfectly from the get go, right? Like irrespective of the editing process that's to come that I just found myself not writing anything. But like almost going back to that thing we talked about with Kurt Vonnegut last time, just because like, like there's value in writing just for me. I don't have to publish everything I write. I can write and it could be terrible. And then I could just not publish that day. And my soul will grow. How did you come to this idea that you have to write perfect on the first time? In English class, when you had essays, didn't you go through multiple iterations of a draft? So you wrote your first draft just to get everything out on paper. And then did you do peer review drafts within your English class? You know... That's a good point. We definitely did it that way. I think I, I get too focused on the outcome that I'm trying to get to. And I don't really logically think about the steps to get there. Like part of the reason I like to write is because it's fun. Like I feel it helps me think it's fun. It's rewarding. Hopefully I'm adding some value to the world. I want to optimize it to, so I can write more. I can write faster. I can write better. And I actually just finished uh, Nassim Taleb's book, Skin in the Game. One of the things he talks about is this idea that once you try to start optimizing something, it completely sucks the fun out of it. And so having finished that a couple of days later, I was like, it really it really struck a chord with me about with my writing. And it's like, uh, yes, I have all these strategies and all these details and all these particulars about how my trip could be planned, going back to your metaphor from before. That's not going to make the trip better. That's not going to make my writing better. That's not going to make me want to write more. Ultimately, it's going to suck my motivation out of it because it's no longer fun. I definitely found that to be the case. One thing, and I think this is a useful strategy for the people who listen to this. Like One thing I really like about the podcast in particular is that the fact that we are accountable to each other for our preparation and the fact that it's fun is kind of like a forcing function that gets me to do it so i don't know about you but i'm like the two weeks in between when we record i'm not spreading out the work evenly <laughs> i'm basically waiting until like the last day and then doing all my preparation and then we get on here and we talk and it's a blast either way um but the fact that it's scheduled even if we do change it up a couple a couple days here a couple days there holds me accountable to making progress towards something that i really care about and if I if I didn't have that schedule, like ultimately, and this is where this case differs from my writing, like I just I wouldn't be driving myself forward towards something that I care about in a meaningful way on a schedule that made any sense or that was ever going to get me there. Yeah, having some sort of what you said forcing function or some method of accountability really helps to propel you forward. 
at least me, I don't know, maybe there are people out there that they're really good at self-accountability and they just are able to power through. But I know a lot of people trying to pursue a project or an idea, they need a method of accountability that's external rather than internal. Well, I mean, have we ever talked about Jocko Willink? I don't think so. Ex-Navy SEAL or Marine. I'm probably getting that wrong. He's got millions and millions of followers on YouTube. Big podcast. Uh, really insightful guy. But he his whole thing is discipline isn't some constraint that restricts us from doing the things that we want to do in the world. Discipline provides the structure to our life, you know, to all the, the routine things that we do so that ultimately the time that we have left to do things that we care about is time when we have energy, time that's set aside, time that's protected, time that's solely focused on what we care about. He sums it all up in the phrase, discipline equals freedom. And I, I really like that. And so I've been trying in my own way to cultivate a more disciplined, personally accountable approach to my life. Because I'm one of those people who does not find that innately within me. Well, maybe if you do it enough, you can figure out a way to innately. Well, I feel like you do. Like, say what you will. I feel like you're one of those people who's like, this is what's got to be done. I'm going to do it just because that's what I need to do. Well, I have a lot of methods of accountability. I think the biggest method for my accountability or accountability method is I announce it to the world of what I'm trying to do. And then when people keep asking me about it, I feel really bad that I didn't follow through on it. But does that make you? Do yeah, it does. Like it does. Yeah, I would think. Like with the okay. chef thing, I was procrastinating on it, and my girlfriend was like, "Did you send in the, the options yet? Like you said you were." And I was, I just felt terrible. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't send them in. I said I was gonna send them in, so then I sent it in." <laughs> that to me is my. There you go. But again, that accountability is external to myself. I mean, there is pride in the process where I want to do these things and I hold myself accountable to deadlines because this is how I view myself as someone who is disciplined. But is that really for you or is that for other people? Again, that would be external. Like I see myself, I identify for myself as I am a disciplined person, but that other people are seeing that. And so if I do things that are against that identity. And I tell people that, and I label myself as a disciplined person. They're like, you're not really that disciplined. You're definitely a curious person, which opens your world up to new and interesting serendipitous things. And you're the kind of person in my mind, that's not just going to want to do these things. You're going to like go and get them. Does that sound like you? For the most part. Yeah, I would say. I mean, there's lots of things that I have on my list that, to your point, I, I have lots of aspirations. Like, I want to maybe try van life for a bit, or I want to, I'm looking at, I was looking at land the other day because I thought, oh, well, housing prices are going up like crazy. What about buying, just buying the land under it and not having anything on it and just waiting for it to appreciate? So I kind of went down those rabbit holes, right? 
but your actions inform really what you want to do. <laughs> so if you're spending, you're like, oh, I want to go to Europe, but then you never look at options to fly there, then that informs, do I really want to go there? Because if I did, then I would be looking at options to try and get there. That's another really good point. You just keep blowing my mind tonight. That's a good one. The way I think about that is like, I'm, I tell myself I want to go to Tokyo or to Japan or I want to become a person who's a runner. This is a better example. I want to become a person who's a runner. But like day in and day out, I find myself wanting that, but I'm not getting any closer. If anything, I'm getting farther from that goal. And it's like, okay, well, I can either continue to do the same behavior that I'm doing every day today, spend my time the way I'm spending my time today, and ultimately never become a runner. Or if I really am serious about wanting to pursue this interest, I got to change something. Because if I just keep doing the same stuff, I keep spending my time in the same exact way I'm spending it now, I'm never going to get there. Like I have to choose today to become that thing. Or like if I want to learn calligraphy, that's something I've wanted to learn for a while. It's like, well, eventually I'll get to it. But there's got to be like that, that those first demonstrative steps. If only to, to like demonstrate to myself that I'm willing to take the time to change my behaviors, to actually put in the work and get there we should put out a poll on this one, this episode, because I'm really curious. We know a lot of people that are pursuing passions or building a business. If there's a passion project you're pursuing, why are you pursuing it? And what keeps you motivated and accountable to the deadlines that you set for yourself? And if you want to, you can come on here and talk with us about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that, I think we've talked that video to death <laughs> why don't we move on to this next video called the clues to a great story by andrew stanton and this gentleman he's a big screenwriter he was a screenwriter behind toy story wally a bug's life john carter but he, he directed finding nemo he directed wally he is the voice of the turtle in Finding Nemo, and he directed John Carter, and then he did the screenplay earlier in his career for Toy Story and A Bug's Life. So Michael clearly knows a lot more about this individual than, than I do, but this video Michael shared with me, it was a TED Talk, and he talks about the clues to a great story, plain and simple. He emphasized the importance of stories. Why do we like stories? What makes us be able to tell them over and over again and still have the same emotional reaction or connection to each other. He says stories create connection and that's why they're timeless. But what makes a story great are the, the following. It makes the audience care. It provides them with a the promise that they end up fulfilling at the end of the story. It gives the audience something to work for. You don't just lay it out for them. They have to connect the dots. There's an absence of information that the audience has to figure out or into it. The characters in the story, they have what he calls spines or an inner motor, something, some truth that they are motivated to above all else. And 
what makes characters and stories interesting is the ability for them to have that motivation and put them in situations where they may not make the best choice because they are doing things and be having actions and choices in service of that inner motor. And then finally, best stories that we all hear infuse wonder and have bits of ourselves in them. We can see ourselves and our experiences within the story, within the characters. Can I hit you with a hard question at the top? Go ahead. If, you're, if your life is your story and you are the main character in your story, what's your spine? Oh, man. That was my question for you. You took it out of me. <laughs> this one's hard. I, I didn't think about this. I was just going to ask you and put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't think about it for myself. The spine, the spine, the spine. Like, is it? Do you think it's different than your purpose, or or do you think it's more like action oriented around like your present day, every day? I think it's your purpose. I really think because the examples that he gives are Lawrence of Arabia. Who are you? Yeah, that's was his purpose throughout the entire story. His character, his actions were driven by this search for who he was what is his identity on this planet and it doesn't have i would say that a lot of people feel that their spines or their inner motive has to be something very very noble but i don't think it does i think a lot of people's spines actually is people pleasing acceptance what we talked about with the conformity part in the beginning of this is acceptance they want to be accepted by their peers they wanted to have the recognition the fame the acknowledgement that they are somebody yes have you ever read the five dysfunctions of a team i think we talked about it on a podcast before right yeah it's how they define politics uh, which is saying what you think other people want to hear instead of what you really think hmm. that's exactly what you're describing can i can i counter Sure. What you're saying, and this this builds like we talked about what is purpose in the context of like Viktor Frankl and man's um, man's search, search for, for meaning, meaning, which is his book. Yeah, sorry, brain fart. And we, he talks about how your purpose is whatever is to be fulfilled by your future self. I won't go into all the particulars of like what mine is or whatever because we talked about that last time. But you know, framing it like this in the context of these stories and the context of Lawrence of Arabia, like you were like. Your life is big. It is long. It's the longest thing you'll ever do. Lawrence Arabia, even in the context of this one protagonist, is just a chapter in that, in that character's life, right? It's not his whole life, necessarily. Um, depending on the story, that may vary. Maybe, and I think Viktor Frankl's definition of purpose leaves room for this, maybe your motor, your spine, can be oriented around different chapters in your life. And the chapters can vary in length. They can vary in size. And when I think about that, I think about it in terms of like, and I'm just, this is all off the top of my head. Sometimes I think about my life in terms of like chapters, just like everybody else, but like, what are the bookends to those chapters? Sometimes it's obvious stuff like going to school, moving to a new place, starting a new job. But I, I think there's other types of inflection points that can happen along your life too. 
one inflection point that I go back to a lot is uh, when I started to draw, like when I learned that I could draw. Another one is like when I found out that I liked running. Like neither, neither of those things had anything to do with the, the big landmark, like re- completely recontextualizing my life events, like changing jobs or houses. It was just like a new like self-discovery type inflection point starting the blog starting the podcast i feel like these are something this could be big inflection points when i look back on them in, in the future so like for me right now like my motivator would be about i mean other than the the big stuff in my life like being the best husband son brother all that stuff it'd be a really it'd be about trying to learn as much as i can about how to get through the world and to share that with people who maybe are trying to figure it out for themselves so yeah 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 yeah. so those inflections that sounds like your purpose yeah well it does but like what do you think about this idea of conflection points where you're like this is a point where i i see something changed about myself and from that point on my motivation my spine was different or something new came into the picture like does that resonate with you at all i think that that's fair I mean, when people have kids, it says their entire world changes, right? Their entire worldview changes because then their spine becomes, or their inner motor becomes in service of the child. I think a lot of people end up like when they have kids, that's how it goes. Like all the things that I do is in service of the child. I think it's really interesting. I don't know what my inner motor is right now, what it would be, because I think you find your inner motor when you are pushed to the limit. He talks about that in this TED talk. And it really stuck out to me that you don't find out the spine until you push that character to the limit where everything is conditional in service of that inner motor. So one of the examples he gives was Woody. Woody wants to be the top toy. He's a kind, generous person, toy, (laughs) in Toy Story, but when pushed to the very limit, he leaves Buzz Lightyear at the pizza place. He doesn't think twice about it because it's all in service of this idea that he wants to be the Andy's toy. He is Andy's toy. And so to get back to the point, I don't know what my spine is because I don't think I have pushed myself to the point where I will break certain things conditionally in service of that inner motor. But I think parents will do that. I mean, they will, they will do anything to preserve their child. Most, most parents, right. They will slap another mother. If that mother touches their kid, you know, they, they, they will don the tiger thing or in the case of Will Smith, he will open slap Chris rock. If, he insults his wife. He will unleash right? the panda. Yeah, he will <laughs> unleash the panda. So, that, I mean, that seems like that's Will Smith's fine. That conditionally, like, he will defend those that he loves because he sees himself as the defender of his community. With these really heavy, man, these are, these are such heavy thoughts right now. Why don't we go to something that is... Not so heavy, maybe a little boring, shall we say? <laughs> the last thing we got here is a scientific journal 
you know those scientific articles where they take something that everybody kind of knows in a general sense and they're like we're going to actually study this and prove out that it is what everybody thinks it is well this study is called boring people stereotype characteristics interpersonal attributions and social reactions so basically they they study like what it means to be boring and here's a little bit about it one of the things they explore in their study is like is being boring something that it only exists as a perception or is it a state of being and they in the process of reading through this quite long paper they talk about four studies that were conducted that they performed some analysis on and they look at boring quote boring in terms of parameters such as stereotype characteristics which is divided into a couple categories which i'll get to in a second interpersonal attributions how much are you willing to pay to get away from this person (laughs) 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 social reactions and then they 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 expand on it from there so in terms of boring characteristics it's broken down into like personality characteristics hobbies and occupations or jobs examples of boring personality traits are typically framed along the two dimensions of like relative warmth and relative competence Um, they talk about how Boring people tend to be low warmth and low competence. They originally are, they know that it's low warmth or they're more confident in that and less confident in where it scales on the competence meter. So it was interesting that they landed on low competence at the end. Other personality characteristics are banality, which is kind of funny because that's like a synonym for being boredom, for being boring these days. Talking less, sharing few opinions, lack of interest in other people. All those, all those things that are not me and Robert, best I can tell, having you know, put together a whole podcast based on curiosity and talking to people. Some examples of boring hobbies are sleeping, religion, watching TV, among others, which I'm sure we will get to later. Some boring occupations, data analysis, accounting, tax, insurance, cleaners, bankers, finance, among others, which we'll get to later. And they go, then they go into talking. Uh, they expand on it. Though, so th- that's those... Everything I've talked about so far is in the context of stereotypes. Then they talk about it in the context of like personal and romantic relationships, those personality characteristics and how they come into play when you're dealing with another person. They expand it into more, more broadly or more loosely, just relationships in general. They talk about how much people are willing to endure your social uh, endure social interactions with you, which I thought endure was a funny use of word there. They ultimately come to the conclusion that boringness is a real thing and it seems to exist as a perception. You are perceived as boring and that's ultimately what people care about more than whether or not you're legitimately boring. And one final tidbit they say is boring people don't live in big cities or small villages. They live in medium-sized towns and cities. I was like, (laughs) help, middle of the road, milk toasted them. It checks out. I guess since I live in a big city, I, I don't run into any boring people. I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> if you look at the paper, it's very, very technical. I'm, I'm sorry, Michael, I gave you a very long and dry piece, but it's very interesting, the conclusions that they made. There's a lot of material there. Like I, I, I spared you guys the mechanisms and methodology for how they did these different studies which I'll admit I glossed over a little bit when I was reading it, but the conclusions, the types of studies they did, super interesting. 
like if I were studying something as fundamental as boredom and what makes a person boring, everything they did makes sense to me. I don't know if I would have thought of it that way, but much respect. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's very much perception based because the more specialized you are, the more you're perceived as boring. I have a, quite a few thoughts on this, but so the first thing is I, I like this article because it's definitely boring is a perception. My mom used to say, if you're bored, you're boring. Are you a boring person? <laughs> Whatever we said, we were bored. But, well, I'm bored, mom. It's like, well, if you're bored, you're boring. So are you a boring person? And obviously no one wants to be called a boring person. So, but then the other, the other part of it is I find that if you're in a specialized field and that's really what you love to do and that's your passion, then you really have no time to devote to anything other than the passion that you're pursuing. So when you go in a general socialized setting, which is, you know, they, they took a, a survey of it's a general population. You're not going to be able to talk about anything except for the one thing that you're truly passionate about. And that makes you boring because they can't connect with you. So for example, sports is considered, if, you're, if your hobby is sports, that is considered very, very boring. But if you think about the people that focus on sports, they are, they spend a lot of their time looking at the stats, knowing the players, what's, what the next aspiring player is going to be, who's the breakout star. They have to cover so much information season to season, year to year. They really have nothing. Maybe they don't have a lot of time to devote to other topics. So to the general populace, yeah, you're boring because you can't talk about this wide breadth of things. You can only talk about one thing because that's where you put all your time. Yeah, it's like uh, I actually watched uh, – bringing it back to Jocko again. I did watch another video about him. It's like everybody's kind of in their own ecosystem playing their own game, getting good at something or being interested in something. And ultimately, if I want to talk about consulting or being good at that or the difficulties I deal with at my job, the people who care most are the people who do the same thing at my job. But literally nobody else is going to care. If I like sports and I'm talking to someone who doesn't like sports, literally not going to care. If I'm talking to another sports fan, if they like the same team, we'll have tons to talk about. If they like another team in the same sport, we'll have stuff to talk about, but less. If they like baseball and I like hockey, again, two different games, right? So I think there's something to that because the more you specialize, it's like how they say leadership is lonely. Like the more you get to the top of the hierarchy in your respective field, either through like uh, advancement or specialization, there's just nobody to talk to. This idea that it's a perception that you're talking about brought me back to Jordan Peterson because he was like, when we see the world and the things in the world, we don't see them for what they are. We see them for how we can use them. Like when we look at a chair, we don't think, oh, there's a piece of wood with four legs. We think of it as like, oh, there's a place I could sit down. Uh, when we look at a, a lamp, we don't think, oh, there's a a base with a rod sticking up from the base with a little glass bulb on the top surrounded by some kind of fabric. No, we see a thing that can give us light. And if it doesn't give us light, we get mad at it. <laughs> and, I, and I thought that was really insightful. And so when you, we're, when you were talking about this idea that being boring is a perception or like an interaction between two people. And it, it almost 
they sure someone can be boring or have boring characteristics generally speaking but like what matters to me is like i'm stuck in an elevator is this person that i'm in here with someone who's engaging and someone that i'm interested to talk to they could be engaging to somebody else but if they don't care they don't play the same games that i play so to speak then they're boring yeah you're basic well but that's see the, the interesting thing is with that quote from Jordan Peterson, and maybe I mis, misinterpreted it, but we find things that are useful to us interesting, right? If they have knowledge, we find things that are useful to us interesting. Is that is that his point? No, his, his point is we see things for their utility for us, not for what they are. So if you were to apply that to the boring comment, the, the people that we find interesting are the ones that we have, according to Jordan Peterson, use for, and those that we don't utility for. But that's interesting. That that's interesting because accountants are one of the <laughs> are, are seen as perceived as one of the most boring people. But accountants are very as in terms of their occupation and what they know is very useful to us, especially during tax season. But just in general, useful for being able to track where our money is okay well it might, it's probably in the context of what you're what space you're talking about if i'm sitting next to them at a cocktail party i don't want to talk about taxes <laughs> and accounting uh talk about literally i guess it does your job become your whole identity <laughs> and you can talk about nothing else I'd, I'd be interested to see it with the correlation between like what your job is and how much of your personality it, it consumes hmm. well I've talked to a few accountants. I was in, I made accounting software and they're pretty interesting people. <laughs> I mean, they're, <laughs> once you find out that you know, their job is not their life, which is silly to think because most people's job is not their life, right? But for some reason, we assume that accountants, their job is their life. I don't know. Mac McKinsey used to recruit these guys. Uh, to her old company because she was a corporate recruiter and she was like oh hey nice to meet you potential prospective candidate over here we like to have fun what do you think about having fun do you like to have fun he's like mm, i don't really like to have fun so i don't know that it's going to be a good fit that's what i think of when i think of accountants actual story to have <laughs> <laughs> maybe he just doesn't like fun at work because he's there to work yeah, maybe. I don't know. That's that's definitely. It's a thing. just interesting because I can't sign you. One guy was he ran marathons. That's what he did. He would travel around the world. He would run marathons. And the other accountant, she was I think like real estate, and and interested in fashion. But her day job was being an accountant and tracking money. Well, if you're if okay, going back to your premise that they only care about doing work when they're at work. If you work with this person and they only care about doing work at work, which what's your in to find out that they have multitudes? They contain multitudes. That's where you have to be the more interesting person. So like you have to drive them to want to talk to you by being perceived as not. No, boring you have to. Yeah, group? you have to engage them. Okay, so if there's a person that you perceive as boring. I think in this article, people are less likely to talk to them and they'd have to pay them to be hanging out in a room with them. But does that mean that they themselves are boring? Because the other person probably thinks they're boring too. 
because they're not even coming over and talking or interacting with me. Well, if we frame it around the the warmth dynamic or dimension that they talk about, um, someone may be pretty cold at work, but they might be extremely warm with their family or their church or their their community outside of work. I think that goes back to what we were talking about or to what they're talking about, about it being a perception by others rather than just like who you are. Any, I think anybody has the capacity to be interesting, just the same way that anybody has the capacity to be boring at any given time. Just the same way anybody has the capacity to be an asshole when they're generally a nice person, right? Fair. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I, it's funny because I didn't think about that when I was reading it, but now that I think about it in those terms, I'm like, another thing I wanted to ask you, traditionally boring is something that don't people don't want to be. Do you feel like being boring is the... In the 90s, growing up, I feel like if someone was boring, that's like the worst thing they could be as a kid or whatever. Do you feel like that's the standard now? Like if you're a kid and let's just assume the person's not just like an asshole or whatever, like could it be that the worst thing to be is sketchy or cringe or, I don't know, intolerant? Is boring still like as ostracizing as it once was, relatively speaking? So you know what's interesting is I don't feel like I've heard that being thrown around as much, that term. That that person is a boring person. Maybe we just aren't boring. People aren't considered boring because we have all these distractions. So you're always doing something. You're never not doing something or like sitting and staring at a wall. I went to pick up food the other day, uh, takeout, and it was it took longer to prepare than, than that usual and i i was like i didn't know that so i went inside without my phone and i just sat there for like 20 minutes and i was like you know what i'm gonna do something different with this time i'm gonna count the ceiling tiles and just like think in terms of like an artist's perspective and memorize the layout of this room something that i probably used to do all the time like i remember so many times when i was young before the internet and cell phones and i would i'd, I'd just like lean back look up in class on in those like band rooms that have like infinitely high ceilings and just count those tiles you know those like three by six tiles that are like an inch thick that are that litter the ceiling i don't remember the last time i did that i think definitely the worst thing these days is being an intolerant person but i to your point i think we've maybe boring people being a boring person is kind of being phased out of a vernacular because you're always doing something. There's always something to do. Can we can we talk about some of the hobbies and occupations that they list as boring that I thought were funny or relatable? Puzzles? Okay. The, these people have obviously not done puzzles. Puzzles are a hoot. Oh, you, spe- you said sport. Wait, what kind of puzzles are we talking about? Are we talking about those desk puzzles or are we talking about like a jigsaw puzzle? Getting into semantics might be a... Might be one of these boring characteristics. Uh, I think jigsaw puzzles. I think it is a boring characteristic, being too technical. <laughs> Sports, I was surprised by. Watching TV, I think is a. I think boring people don't have a lot of curiosity or they get wrapped up into like just watching TV. So I can relate to that. Reading, gaming, writing, gardening. You're a gardener, I guess, depending okay, on. Okay, but to be fair, it was listed for. So there's a rating scale. It was the, the of the <laughs> hobbies that they listed as boring. It was the least likely to be boring 
of the boring hobbies that they listed. Yeah, like, I don't know. Some of these things I don't find boring at all. So maybe it's just, maybe I'm more boring than I thought it was. And then on the career side, it's like, okay, what was surprising to me? I was surprised that computers and IT was not at the very top. I was uh, I was surprised similarly for manager tasks or manager roles and engineering roles. Like I expected the INTJ type positions to be at the very top, which I guess accounting and all that stuff could be. Uh, the And then the last thing that surprised me was that um, of the ones they measured, performing arts was at the bottom and one step up from the bottom was science. And I was like, science people, I feel like could be like, they're not all Bill Nye. They're not all like super interesting scientists with bow ties. I feel like most of them are PhD students, no offense, who are, you know, compelled to do the same thing every day. Well, think about it this way. You said that they had the attribution that someone who is boring is low warmth and low competence. But in those fields, Mm. engineering, science, they may be low warmth fields, but they definitely have high competence or a perceived high competence. Okay, that's so an they interesting point. Boring, right? I didn't look at it that way. But okay, yeah. now I'm freaking out that accounting's towards the top. The accountings <laughs> are incompetent. We got a bumbling fool handling my taxes. Okay, what's the job of an accountant? The job of an accountant is to track your money. So I guess the perception of what they do every day is like, well, how hard it can it be? You move $1 from this account to this account. And you move one money from that account to that account. Like how confident, how, how skilled do you have to be to be able to do that? That's the perception anyway. Like I said, it's the perception because accounting, getting a CPA is very difficult. <laughs> like not everybody can get a CPA. I mean, maybe they could if they tried really hard, but it takes skill and know how to get a CPA. Gosh. Uh, the characteristics, though, like the personality traits, I thought they hit the nail on the head. Dull, not interesting, no interests, no sense of humor, no opinions. I just thought of one more personality attribute that I would add that I don't know if it was on there. Predictability. I think predictability is boring. It's not bad. It's good to be predictable sometimes. But I think that's boring. They didn't ask me, though, so it's not in there. Awesome. Well, I think that wraps it up. Yeah, we've come a long way. We talked about procrastination, storytelling, what it means to be boring. We confirmed that being bored is not a myth. We talked about creativity. What a journey. Hey, folks, uh, if you stayed to the end of this podcast and listened to us, we really appreciate it. If you're not a boring person, go ahead and leave us five stars on Spotify or wherever you are able to rate this podcast. If you want to interact with us on social, let us know how we did. Or if you want to respond to our survey or our question that we posed in this episode, please Tweet us at the Variety Show Pod or leave us a voice or comment on Anchor. We'll have that link in the episode description. And as always, 
If you want to check out Michael's blog and what he's up to and what he's writing, that link is there. Anyway, that's <laughs> it, right? Stay curious, folks. Stay curious. Appreciate you all. <laughs> Thank you.